0: We are this morning in Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. Martin Luther said this, in the Old and New Testament, practically, the Scriptures point to the baptism of Jesus. The Scriptures actually do not make much about the birth or the childhood of Christ. So Luther says the Scriptures in the Old and the New Testament point much more specifically and deeply to the baptism of Jesus even more so than to his birth and to his childhood. So this is a significant thing for us to consider this morning. So if you will stand with me as we hear the gospel reading from Matthew chapter 3 verses 13 through 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Pray with me. Father, we pray this morning that you would show us your truth and that your truth would set us free. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You be seated again. All this seating and standing is good this morning. It keeps you active and warm. When I say the word baptism, I wonder what connotations you have with that in your mind. If I were to get you to do an exercise, let's say, where you were to close your eyes, and I simply say baptism, I wonder what image you have in your mind. I have two concurrent images, one being baptisms that happen in the church, particularly baptisms that I have performed or participated in as a minister with my own children and with others. And then my other image is definitely outside the church, and it's within the classic Coen Brothers film, O oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Have you seen this? Pretty, pretty seminal scene in that film, Coen Brothers. Joel and Ethan, pretty uh, creative fellas. Uh, in their own right, and this particular film is really fantastic on a number of levels. One of the most fantastic things about the film is the music. And the music that is performed by Alison Krauss in the scene of the baptism, I went down to the river to pray, is pretty searing on the conscience and in the mind, just with regard to the beauty of it, and then the Cohen brothers intermingled humor into it. Right, and so you see this procession going down into this river, and you hear Allison Krauss' voice sung with a chorus of other people lining up to go into the river to be baptized, and one of the key characters in the film, Delmar, goes down in there to receive this baptism of repentance, and he says this, Well, that's it, boys. I've been redeemed. The preacher's done washed away all my sins and transgressions. It's the straight and narrow from here on out. And heaven's everlasting reward. And then he goes on to say, um, come on in. The water's fine. Um, And then he has this great experience, he says, of renewal. It's interesting that the experience for him of baptism is one way, and then the experience from his partners is another way. It is experience of baptism from others is met with cynicism and sarcasm and even a joke from George Clooney's character saying, that's fine if God's forgiven your sins, but the state of Mississippi uh, is a little tougher than God on people's sins uh, for a particular transgression that he had uh, and knocking off a piggly wiggly. He says, but what is baptism? Is baptism really this washing away of sins and renewal? How significant is that in the life of the believer? How significant is that in the life of Christ? Or is it something that doesn't really carry much significance with it, that might even engender within us cynicism and sarcasm. And if nothing else, it engenders with us great questions. So what is exactly going on with baptism, and specifically Jesus' baptism here at the beginning of the Gospels here in Matthew 3? What I want us to see from Matthew 3 primarily about Jesus' baptism is that it connects Christ to His people. Jesus' baptism connects Christ to His people. The baptism of Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise, not the full fulfillment, but it is the true fulfillment of God's promise, and the baptism of Jesus also is the beginning of Jesus' mission. But in an overarching way, what we see happening with Jesus' baptism is God using this particular event to connect his son with his people. This is important because we as people are like sheep who have gone astray. We as people are naturally predisposed to be disconnected. And so we need something to pull us back into connection. We are disconnected from God and we are disconnected. From others, and that's the result of the fall. And what Christ's baptism does for us and in us and through us is it connects us with Him. It connects us with Him as He identifies with us and as we find our identity in Him. You see, all of us are deep down asking this question um, in our heart of hearts and even on the surface every day, And the question is simply this, will you be there for me? Sue Johnson is a marital therapist in California. She's studied extensively the dynamics of marriage and human relationships. And in her book, Hold Me Tight, she says and boils down to uh, kind of the main crux and the main issue in marriages is each spouse looking at the other and asking, will you be there for me? And essentially, she says, to the degree that question is affirmed or denied gives an indication of how strong that marriage and that relationship is. Will you be there for me? Well, you see, we're asking that horizontally with other people. We are also, and more significantly and more deeply, asking this question vertically with God, religiously, spiritually. All of our lives in many ways are a search for significance, a search for identity, a search for connection. This question, will you be there for me? And Jesus' baptism wholeheartedly affirms by saying yes, as He identifies with us and as we find our identity in Him. We're going to unpack those two points more specifically as we move through this morning, this idea of Christ's baptism connecting us to Him, main point, two points underneath the main point, Jesus identifies with His people in His baptism, and His people find their identity in Him through His baptism. But before we unpack that in more detail, there's a few things we've got to establish, and these are things that preachers, and I'm guilty of this as well, and Christians specifically are really guilty of, which is just making assumptions. So, making an assertion like baptism, Jesus' baptism, connects us to God without, for example, defining baptism, right? And so, I want to define a few things under the title of First Things First, before we look at Christ identifying with His people through, the bapti- through His baptism, and then us finding our identity in Christ through Christ's baptism. What is baptism? The Westminster Confession of Faith and the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Question 94 says this, to answer it succinctly, baptism is a sacrament, and it's actually a sacrament that takes the place of the Old Testament sacrament circumcision in the Old Testament. Baptism is a New Testament sacrament, and a sacrament is simply a sign and a seal representing something. It represents renewal, new life, repentance, and faithfulness. That's what baptism does, but the, question, the answer goes on. Baptism is a sacrament. We're in the washing with water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It does signify and seal our connection to Christ, and our partaking of the covenant of grace, and our engagement to be the Lord's. This is true about Christ, and I get that this gets a little confusing when we talk about Christ as man, and we talk about Christ as God, but let's not overlook the reality that Jesus took on flesh, and that He was, and even is, fully man, while at the same time, being fully God. So, this happened with Christ. Christ's baptism sets before us this example of repentance, cleansing, and faithfulness to God. Another thing that's important to understand in this setting is who the one is doing the baptizing. It's John the Baptist. John the Baptist is a prophet that has spoken for the first time in 400 years so, the Old Testament prophecy ends, 400 years of silence, and here comes John the Baptist, the new prophet. In fact, Jesus says about John the Baptist, he's the greatest prophet, because he's the prophet that prophesies about the coming Messiah, both before, during, and with the Messiah himself. So, John the Baptist, who is also a relative of Christ, is a prophet. He's an obscure man. He has a message where he calls all to repentance, and he was a baptizer, hence the name John the Baptist. And so, when Jesus comes to John the Baptist, you can understand, or we need to understand, how shocking this must have been for John to hear, because John was quick to say, that is, John the Baptist was quick to say, that he was not the Christ. I love that confession, in fact, in the Gospels. When people are confusing John the Baptist to be somebody that he's not, and he's said, no, 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 let's just be clear about this. I'm not even unworthy, I'm not even worthy to untie the sandals of the Christ. I am not the Christ, which as a side note, would be a good way to begin each day in our own lives. Be a good reminder of our dependence and our abiding. Because you see, oddly enough, we are tempted to believe delusionally that we are the Christ, that we are God, that it's time to make it happen, it's time to make it rain, it's time to be the center of our universe. But John the Baptist was very clear about who he was, and he simply stated, I'm not. I'm a prophet. I'm a baptizer. I preach repentance and faith, but let's just be real clear here. I'm not the Christ. So we know what baptism is succinctly. We hear about who John the Baptist is. There's one other element for us to consider before we delve in in more detail. The text tells us that Christ's baptism happened to fulfill all righteousness. What does it mean to fulfill all righteousness? Succinctly and specifically, Christ's baptism fulfills all righteousness, first of all, because it is being obedient to God's will. God calls people to partake in His sacrament. And Jesus is submitting out of obedience to God's will and fulfilling God's promise. The second aspect of what it means to fulfill all righteousness is Jesus is showing us here through His baptism that baptism is not simply about water, but baptism is about receiving the power of the Spirit. Baptism is a sign and a seal representing Repentance, cleansing, and faithfulness. Baptism was done by John the Baptist, the prophet, who was the first prophet to speak in 400 years, who led the way for Christ, who was really clear about not being the Christ. And then he and Jesus together are seeking in this seminal moment to fulfill all righteousness by being faithful to what God had called them to, and by ushering in a fuller sense of baptism, not just with water, but with the Spirit. So back to our purposes here this morning and the way that we're going to approach this text. Baptism connects Christ's people to Himself. The first way it does that is the way in which Christ identifies with His people. Now, you can imagine how challenging this was for John the Baptist, even as I just referred to, who was clear about saying he was not the Christ, who was clear to say, I'm not even worthy to untie the sandals of Christ. And here comes Jesus to him in the River Jordan with others around in a public way and ask him to baptize him. It would be like Stephen Curry Coming to me, let's say, in this gym and saying, "Hey, can you come over here for a second? Do you, could you show me how to shoot a three- pointer? Or Bill Gates pulling you over to his laptop and saying, "Hey, um, windows, can you show me like what, what, can you show me a little bit about this computer, Or maybe talking to some composer like Bach, and saying, "Hey, um." That is, Doc coming to you, saying, um, can you help me read this sheet music? Like right there, what's, what's that note? Can you, can you talk to me about this compilation? Right, can you imagine how absurd this would be? I mean, this would be really cool. I'd, I'd love for Jordan Spieth to come to me and ask me how to hit a drive. It'd be a really embarrassing moment, but it'd be kind of amazing. What would that feel like? Imagine what it must have been like for John the Baptist to hear the Messiah come to him and ask him to baptize him. Especially when John's connotation with baptism was one of repentance and cleansing. You know, and what precedes repentance is sin. And here the Messiah is, who is sinless, asking to receive this sign of cleansing and repentance. But Jesus subjects Himself to this because what He wants to communicate to us is that He is with us. Here you have the Messiah, the Anointed One, God's own Son, fully God, fully man, descending into a river full of sinners literally, figuratively, and spiritually. Christ, the Messiah, identifies with His people by wading in the waters of sin. He has come all the way down, Emmanuel, with us. It would be an amazing scene to have been a part of. You know, we get fascinated when people that are high and mighty rub elbows with commoners. I can remember in 2014, I'm from Memphis originally, and in 2014, um, there was a lot of activity um, surrounding a particular wedding. Um, Prince Harry and Prince William's best friend was marrying a girl from Memphis, and so they were coming in for the wedding, and so the city was abuzz because here are the royals in Memphis with their best friend, marrying, you know, this commoner from Memphis. And and they were tracking all their movements. And I can remember seeing a picture, and I love this picture for so many different reasons, but watching Prince Harry and Prince William walk out of the Rendezvous barbecue restaurant in downtown Memphis, which sits in an alley. And it was just this strange juxtaposition to see the British royals in a downtown alley in Memphis walking out of a barbecue restaurant. It was beautiful. How much more? Like we're fascinated by that because they're out of place, right? Like British royalty doesn't go to an alley in Memphis and eat barbecue. But how much more does God in the flesh, walk into a river of sinners to receive a sign and a seal of cleansing, purity, and repentance. It's crazy. But it testifies to what the writer of Hebrews says, which says... We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. You see, here's the reality. We all live in a river of sin. Like, in our own lives. I'm not talking about, like, you know, the the culture, right? Which is true. And we're good about talking about, like, we live in such a sinful culture. You know, our whole culture is going to hell in a handbasket. It's like a river of sin. Well, let's just start here. Like, your mind is a river of sin. My heart is a river of sin. My mouth is a river of sin. And what this text is telling us is Jesus wades in to rivers of sin. Because he wants to identify with his people. It's not dissimilar to what we see in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. There are this, there's this litany of blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are merciful. Blessed are the peacekeepers. And what the Beatitudes show us, it's not a to-do list, but it's a you-are list. And it's a you-are list. We'll talk more about that some other time. I love the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. But what it really is, it's a picture of who Jesus is. But there's one Beatitude that says, blessed are those who mourn. And specifically, it's talking about blessed are those who mourn over or about sin. Well, if this list really encompasses who Jesus is, and it says blessed are those who mourn, and mourning specifically has to do with mourning over sin, then why in the world would Jesus, or how in the world would Jesus who is sinless mourn over sin? He mourns over your sin. And he mourns over the sinful effects of the world. He mourns over cancer. And he mourns over adultery. Because he is with his people. One pastor said it like this. If you feel weak, if you feel inadequate, if you feel tired, if you feel sinful, if you feel ashamed, listen. Jesus Christ has completely identified with your sin. He knows how difficult it is, how much it hurts, how much it confuses, because He made it His business to identify with you to the nth degree. Why? Because He is not simply trying to be your example. You hear that? He is not simply trying to be your example. Jesus set and had a specific purpose, which was to be our substitute. Do you understand that distinction? This is where we can slip into moralism and legalism so easily within the church, when Christ is preached exclusively as our example. And then we're left with this mentality and this drive to go be more like Jesus, which of course that's a calling of a Christian. But if we only preach Christ as an example, we don't preach the full gospel, But Christ is not only our example. In fact, before being our example, Christ is our substitute, meaning Christ is our Savior. And so how dare we talk about, or how dare we preach, or how dare we center a faith and a religion simply around Christ being our example and not being our substitute and our Savior. This preacher goes on to say he wants to redeem us, and to redeem us he must represent us And to take on all our weaknesses, all our wanderings, all our suffering, all our sin. He submits to a baptism for sinners, even though He's sinless. Because in all our baptisms, in all our striving to be clean by whatever means, we still come up dirty. We still have to hide our faults. We still feel shame. We still know that we owe. So Jesus is baptized among us, for us, that we might have his cleanliness. Baptism or Christ's baptism is about his identification with us as sinners. As Isaiah said, he is numbered with the transgressors, with the transgressors. Not only do we see Christ receiving this identification with us, we also see Christ being affirmed by the Father. And this has deep implications for us. And who we are. For our purposes this morning, the most significant verse that I want us to leave with is the last verse in this text as we transition from us looking at Christ identifying with us as his people to us finding our identity in him. This is the identity in him that we were made for. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son. With whom I am well pleased. What a statement of affirmation. What a statement of mission. Even for Jesus himself. For Jesus to experience out of faithfulness this act of baptism. And then to experience a voice from heaven speaking to the world. Which only happens twice in the New Testament. Right here and in the transfiguration. And guess what statement is said both times? This statement. This is my son. With him, I am well pleased. Remember, Jesus in the flesh, fully human. Can you imagine how invigorating that was for him as he was beginning his public ministry and mission? Like, we need to hear that Jesus needed to hear this affirmation, in order to fulfill His mission. Christ's baptism is Him identifying with us as His people, specifically with us as sinners. And as a result of this, we are to find our identity in His identification and specifically in this affirmation. Let's look a little bit more about how we find our identity in Christ and how we find our identity in this particular affirmation. I said earlier, I'll say it again, we're always looking for who we are. We're the perpetual Jason Bourne trying to figure out our name. We're the perpetual character, the bird in the children's book by P.D. Eastman. Are you my mother? Have you read that? Right? We're always going around looking for, for someone or something, as you hear me say often, to tell us who we are, right? We look at our jobs, and we don't look at them simply as jobs. We look at it as an identity marker. We look at our spouse, not simply as a spouse, but as an identifier. We look at our kids or their education or their sports, not simply for what they are, but these things are identity markers, right? Our bank account is identity mark, is an identity marker. I have a lot of friends in Memphis that are in the financial industry or in, or, and are in financial sales, and they talk about their sales sheets. I don't know what your sales sheet is. I don't know what your ticker is. I don't know what you look at as the barometer for your identity or affirmation, but we all have something. When we traveled... After Christmas, we were in St. Louis, and it was colder there than it even is here. There were three days in a row where it didn't reach zero degrees, and that's not easy to like, get out in, and I get kind of anxious, and I need to do something and be active, and so I uh, chose to try out on, a, on this trial basis two different uh, cycling classes in the studio called Cycle Bar, and um, there's a lot. I could probably preach a whole sermon on my experience in Cycle Bar, um, which was pretty fantastic in a lot of ways, but it's amazing uh, how evangelistic Cycle Bar was. And, and this is actually true about most communal workout um, experiences, and I'm not even necessarily knocking that. Um, but these things are like highly evangelistic, seeking to proselytize people. And this is where it gets a little bit problematic, I think, primarily uh, on, you know, the glory of, like, humanistic theology, right? That's not really their point, but at the end of the day, it's just like, what can you do? Who are you? This is your voice, your legs, your arms. This is going to decide who you are, and and so I I can't help but to buy into this to some degree uh, as, you know, a a cycling enthusiast. What Cycle Bar, they have this screen up there, right, that, like, tells you, and I know what bike number I'm on, I'm on bike 40 out of 50 as far as the numbers themselves. But then they tell you, like, who's burning the most calories? Who's pressing the most power? Who's riding the fastest? And then, you know, you got the instructor up there drawing your attention to the screen. Don't let them beat you, and don't let this happen, and don't let... And I just thought, this is life. Like, we're all pedaling as fast as we can. Looking at the various metaphorical screens in our life, seeing what place we're in, trying to find our identity. Our identity and our effort. Our identity relative to other people. And this text speaks starkly against that. Because it says your identity is not in yourself. Your identity is not in your power. Your identity is not in your speed. Your identity is not in your sales sheet. Your identity is not in your kids. Your identity is not in your sports teams. Your identity is not in your appearance or the appearance of your home. Your identity is in Christ because He has identified with you. And your identity, even more specifically, is in this statement. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Really, this is the core of Christianity. It's called union with Christ. And what we've got to understand about this statement is this. God the Father was saying this to God the Son, but He was not only saying this to God the Son. He was also saying it to those people who have put their faith and their trust, not fully but truly, in His Son. So, when God the Father says to Jesus, this is my son, with him I am well pleased, guess what? He says that to God, his people as well. Imagine that. This is my daughter with whom I am well pleased. Frederick Beekner, my favorite. Christian writers says this, we are children perhaps at the very moment when we know that it is as children that God loves us. Not because we have deserved His love and not in spite of our undeserving. Not because we try and not because we recognize the futility of our trying, but simply because He has chosen to love us. We are children because He is our Father. In all our efforts, fruitful and fruitless, to do good, speak truth, to understand, Are the efforts of children, who for all their worth are children still, that in before we loved Him, He loved us as children through Jesus Christ our Lord. J.I. Packer, great writer, Christian theologian in his book Knowing God says this, if you want to understand how well someone understands Christianity, if you want to know how well someone understands Christianity, find out how much they make of being God's child and having God as their father. So just think about that this morning. You want to judge how well litmus test, how well you understand Christianity? How prominent is the thought on a day-to-day basis that God is your father and that you are his child and that the father is pleased with his child? But how can that be? Because when he looks at you, he doesn't see you. He sees Jesus. What if that was true about you and yourself? What if you saw Christ instead of your sin? I can remember a few years ago driving through a state park where there was a local penitentiary group off a bus. I'm sure you've seen this before cleaning up trash on the side of the road in this state park and they were wearing the jumpsuits. But these jumpsuits were not simply plain which I'd seen before but these jumpsuits actually had markings on the back. And there was a whole line of men wearing an orange jumpsuit in a state park picking up trash on the side of the road with giant letters on their backs that said this, I am a drunk driver. And I thought how shaming. That must be to wear an orange jumpsuit in public and to have a scarlet letter on your back that says, I am a drunk driver, as if that's their core identity. What do you go around in life thinking is stamped on your back? What jumpsuit do you wear with your identity? I'm an unfaithful husband. I'm not the mom I'm supposed to be. I'm a disobedient child to my parents. I'm foolish with money. I'm materialistic. I'm just not a very good person. It's not your identity. Your identity is rooted in union with Christ, which says you are beloved. And because you are beloved, God is well pleased with you. Why? Because Christ has identified with us. Do you remember the attacks in Paris, the terrorist attacks in 2015? 130 people murdered through terrorists. Do you remember the slogan that went throughout the world, that people posted on their Facebooks, that was all over social media, that was in the printed word as well. Three words. I am Paris. It's a really, really sweet and a great sentiment. You know what? It wasn't really true. It was sympathetic, but it wasn't really true. The gospel's better than that. Because what Jesus says is, I am you. That's what he says in his baptism. I am a sinner because I am in you. And you are the beloved because you are in me. Christ's baptism identifies with us and gives us our identity. You know, no other title that you carry right now in life will last throughout eternity than the title of being the beloved. I don't care what else you do, who else you are. In the new heavens, and the new earth, that's not who you are. May we rest in that. Pray with us. Pray with me. Father, We thank You for Your Son, Jesus. We thank You for His identification with us. We thank You that He went into that river of sin. And we thank You that He goes into the rivers of sin in our own life. We pray that You would continue to do that. We trust that that was not a one-time visit into our river of sin or to the river of sin that exists in our world at large. We pray that You would continually come and you would continually identify with us. We pray also, O oh Lord, that we would find our identity in you. Forgive us for finding our identity in so many things other than you, so many things that will not last. Help us, O oh Lord, to embrace the reality of being the beloved. Help us also to embrace the reality, despite our feelings, that you are pleased with us. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. If uh, our ushers would make their way forward. And uh, parents, if you have any children...